Welcome to the Mike Force Podcast. This episode is brought to you by WoobieOfficial.com, a special forces owned and operated company that provides insulated Woobie jackets. I use the Woobie on active duty, and it's the warmest and most functional piece of military equipment I've used. Woobie Official turned the Woobie blanket and made it into a Woobie jacket. Multicam by Tiger Stripe, you name it, they got it. For a limited time, use Mike Force to save 10% at WoobieOfficial.com. Again, Use Mike Force on checkout to save 10% at willbeofficial.com. Hey guys, on this podcast, I had the opportunity to interview a career intelligence officer that worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. I talked to Rod Smith. Rod Smith has history starting off during the Vietnam War where he was a Marine, injured during the Tet Offensive, uh, became a lawyer. We get into that where he was hunting Nazis and then we get into his career when he was recruited and spent the remainder of his career in the Central Intelligence Agency. He was even the Special Activities Division Chief at the time of 9-11. One of the most accomplished men I've ever interviewed on the podcast, and I, I think you're going to enjoy this. And if you don't, you need to listen to it again. An amazing experience with an amazing man. Ladies and gentlemen, Rod Smith. Hey, sir, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, taking the time. It's my pleasure to be here. I look forward to it. Yeah, I think all the all the people that we do podcast, uh, I've always had your name on a list. You made the list. But I but the I always thought the likelihood of me getting you on the podcast was unlikely because I knew you were real busy. But COVID, one of the benefits of COVID, uh, the few, was that um, you were more so in town now and not traveling, right? Uh, that's correct. My... my uh Travel is, has slowed down considerably. Right now, it's on hold. Yeah. Nobody quite knows what military clients are going to do. I don't, they don't know what they're going to do. So um, interesting. Interesting times, right? Every, absolutely. Um, and with the contract that I sustain, uh, I get to see what the Marine Corps Special Operators are doing, uh, what their focus is. And the skills that they that they have, and the skills that they're acquiring, and I have to say, uh, I am terribly impressed uh, with the quality and talent. And I mean, as a former Marine, I'm, I'm leaning in their direction anyway. But I can tell you, the Marine Corps I see at Marsoc is a far, far different entity than the Marine Corps in which I served back in the '60s. <coughs> I remember the Marine Corps when they started up Marsoc, and you know, it started with Det One. Right. I remember the, the talking to the guys. You know, we had a big part in their operator training course and their selections as contractors, but we were all active duty guys kind of fitting in and helping them get stood up. A lot of them were fighting against the grain because they were, I think the main head of Marine Corps was very adamantly against a specialized unit specifically. And that was just hearsay, but did you ever get a sense of that? that well, I wasn't present personally for that struggle, but I know it went on, and I know what its size and shape was. The, the Marine Corps, as an organization, was not going to join the Special Operations Parade. They just weren't going to do it. The, the commandant and leadership felt that the Marine Corps was special enough as it was. It should be America's 911 force. It should be uh, the expeditionary force of choice and ready to go. Uh, at all times. That was it. That was the mission. And to drag 
some of their best staff NCOs and, and NCOs out of that and put them in this special operations deal. No way, that wasn't going to happen. But finally, I think e either somebody got told, you can't do that. You're going to have to join the party. Or somebody realized that in the, our current post-9-11 environment, special operations is the flavor of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, special operations are going to get the job done. It's the right tool, the right capability for the time. And uh, if you're going to get a mission and you're going to get resources to support that mission, you better have special operations in your name. And so MARSOC got going. Mm -hmm. And it was a rough start, as you know, because at that time, and even today, it's, I think, largely true, nobody joins the Marine Corps to be a special operations guy. Um, I, I have noticed, and I was surprised to see it, uh, last time I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, in the airport, there's a big sign that has, uh, I mean, a big illuminated advertisement overhead that you walk under as you come out of the, down the concourse. And it says, uh, Marines is what we are, special operations is what we do. The wow. Raider Regiment. It's got the Raider Regiment and the skull and the whole deal. Uh, I was, I mean, they're, now they're advertising and trying to attract young guys who not only want to be, uh, think they have the talents to be a, a United States Marine, but from the start, they get guys who are thinking about special operations. That's a, that's a step forward, another evolutionary step. But at the beginning, Debt One had to use good staff NCOs, NCOs, Marines, who didn't know anything about special operations. They hadn't joined. Nobody was even saying special operations when they came in the Marine Corps. They were just real good in force recon or recon, wherever they were, and they came over to do that job, and they had to kind of switch gears completely. And gradually, uh, people caught on and developed those skills, and uh, they evolved. But uh, I think, and this is just Rod Smith's opinion, I know there are other people who share it, but I'm just giving you my personal observation. Since, they, since Marsoc came to the soft game late, they're at the end of the, the parade, um, they have to scramble for a mission. They have to identify mm -hmm. what it is they can do. And, uh, of course, the Marine Corps creed is, we can do anything. Give us a mission. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you can't really, I don't think you can carve out a niche you can't carve out a niche for your organization if your focus is simply, we can do anything, just give us, give us a, a job. You have to carve out your own niche, the way SF has uh, the unconventional warfare account, you know, end to end. Um, SEALs and, and uh, uh, the other tier one, some of the tier one units. There's no question about what their mission is and what they're trained and equipped and capable of doing. MARSOC is really getting its sea legs now. It has exceptionally qualified, motivated, talented, tough guys. Um, and they are gradually carving out a place for themselves. Yeah, it's, it's cool to see that history and then see the place that they're at right now. You're involved with that, but let's, let's go back to, let's try to get a synopsis of, of kind of a snapshot of you know, who you are and where you come from, what, what, ex what you did for a living, and then some different various positions that you served in. 
And then I'll start digging in the weeds. Cause I just, you know, broad stroke, somebody who's listened to this, trying to get contextualize your background experience is difficult to do because you have a myriad of experiences. So let's start there. Where did it begin? Well, I'll give you some weeds then to get down in. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps in 1966. Uh, I had one year of Ivy League education behind me and I uh, took a leave of absence from Dartmouth College to join the Marines at a time when most of my college friends were frantically finding a way out of military service, which wasn't difficult to do in those days. We can talk about that if you want. Um, I served in the Marine Corps. Uh, was the first day of the Tet Offensive, I was wounded, spent four months in the hospital, and then had the pleasure of going back to college so that 19-year-old kids could explain the war to me. That was the best part. <laughs> uh, I went to, I graduated from college, I went to law school, I became an a, uh, investigator in New York City for three years. Uh, as They had a position for lawyers to function as investigators. Uh, and then I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was an assistant, and uh, in 1978, uh, there was a congresswoman named Elizabeth Holtzman who discovered that the Immigration Natural Naturalization Service, that's what handled immigration in those days, INS, became IC. They had about 30 cases on, on the shelf that had been gathering dust of individuals who entered this country under the Displaced Persons Act uh, illegally because they were, in fact, members of the Nazi apparatus and, and had participated in per persecution of civilian populations. And it, it, there was a great rush to get these cases going. INS didn't know what to do with them, and they had just let them sit there. So Justice put together a, a, an office and, and looked for people with trial experience who wanted to do this and involved a lot of travel. And so I did that for three years. I chased Nazis and uh, tried four of them. We can talk about that if you want. Uh, and then went on to various jobs uh, as a lawyer, uh, criminal division justice. I served at the Senate Subcommittee on Investigations, um, President's Commission on Organized Crime uh, under President Reagan. And at that point, that expired as a, it was a creature of executive order, and executive order had an end date in 1986. And I had to decide what I was going to do. Uh, we had a task force working on narcotics, and in those days, narcotics meant cocaine, South America. And there were a couple of guys on the task force who were supposed to be State Department officers. But from the start, I thought, these guys are not State <laughs> Department officers. They were sharp, they were mission-oriented, they they'd stay there and work late, the whole deal. And uh, we got to talking as the expiration date neared, and they said, what are you gonna do after this? And I said, I don't know. Um, all my prospects look like more of the same, and uh, I'm interested in the change. And so they recruited me for their organization. And I joined the Central Intelligence Agency in 1986, and uh, I have to say it was the best decision, professional decision I ever made. It is a wonderful job. I never, ever have understood, as a former Marine, I don't know what the Army's old recruiting slogan, an army of one, means. But in, this, in the CIA, it is the one place I know of where you can indeed, you are required to be an army of one. You have to work uh, singly, uh, clandestinely, without any eyes on you except the eyes of the person you are trying to recruit or you're handling after recruitment. And it's a terrific 
uh, feeling to collect human intelligence that is critically important. And you know that you can put it in the right channels and it will be in the right hands by tomorrow morning. Maybe in the President's Daily Briefing if you're really lucky. So I, I, uh, I really enjoyed that uh, work and it turns out I'm maybe cut out for a job that involves some degree of deception and ethical flexibility. Uh, and I rose through the ranks. And before I retired in 2004, I had been chief of the counterintelligence center and then chief of special activities division, which is where the agency's covert capabilities are housed. And when I say covert, if you want to do something or uh, covert action is a, is a term of art, and it means uh, an affirmative act taken consistent with United States national security interests from which the United States government's hand is hidden or plausible deniability is maintained. Um, but if you want to buy a boat or buy an airplane or stand up a, an org paramilitary capability, um, any of those acts requires presidential authority. You have to have a finding that says, yes, you can buy that airplane. It's necessary for, for the job. And that's about as far as I want to go down that uh, lane. I don't think your listeners need a lot of detail on that. And I want to be careful, as I told you before we went on, on the air, uh, that sources and methods are life's blood in the agency. And I'm old-fashioned. I'm an old guy. Uh, I, I'm pretty religious about the protection of those capabilities. Uh, but they certainly are there. Uh, when I when I asked the um, deputy director of operations, who was my immediate boss, uh, if I could take over special activities division, uh, move from chief CIC, uh, I found counterintelligence center. Uh, chief of the counterintelligence center is a terrible job. It's a it's a <laughs> soul sucking job because you have to make very very difficult decisions on uh, ambiguous information. It's a tough job. Uh, and DDO said, sure, you know, if you really want special activities, you can. Uh, I don't know why you'd want to, because we'll never need paramilitary officers again. I mean, that's, that's yesterday's news. And this is 1999. I said, well, I had seen these guys in action in Bosnia. Uh, when I was chief of Balkan operations. And I really fell in love with the ground branch guys because they were such a, a terrific uh, hybrid creature. They had all the case officer skills, um, plus they could blow up a bridge if they needed to. And uh, I thought if I can ever get back with these guys, I really would like to. So it took me a while to circle around. But in 1999, I, I became chief of special activities. And it's, it's interesting if you know that the CIA's culture the operational part, the DO, the clandestine service, has three, a three-part mission. One is the collection of foreign intelligence from human sources. And that's the big one. Always has been. It's, it's where we make our bread and butter. It's, um, it's easy to subject to metrics. You know how many human intelligence reports you collected, how many made it into the PDB and all that. The second segment is counterintelligence. And like every organization, the agency defines counterintelligence in terms of its primary mission. And so counterintelligence there means 
protecting officers' assets, facilities, operations, uh, and policing our, uh, ourselves internally to ensure that we don't have any penetrations, which we have unfortunately had. Uh, and then there's covert action. That's the third part. Uh, the DO, DDO uh, that I asked to, for the job of special, Chief of Special Activities was an FI guy, pure and simple, I mean, his whole career. And uh, he, was, he was very dapper and very, uh, very smooth, and you could imagine him working very effectively in a cocktail party at a reception. <laughs> um, but he didn't have much interest in special activities. And the FI guys, as a group, didn't have much use for covert action because it's far too easy for it to blow back on you. It's a, it's a risky business. And so he said, sure, take special activities, but I don't know why you want it. You know, we're never going to use those capabilities again. Of course, 9-11 came, and we were the soup du jour, for sure. So you were the chief in charge during 9-11? I was. SAD. In fact, on, on September 11, 2001, uh, when that attack was televised, I was sitting in the office of General Charlie Holland, uh, who was commanding general of SOCOM at that time. Because one, one part of my job as Chief Special Activities, um, I, mean, I was specifically directed to maintain a close working relationship with SOCOM so that we could uh, share experiences, share uh, viewpoints, share uh, training and lessons learned uh, to make our special operations guys uh, front of the pack. So I was sitting in Charlie's office and uh, Eldon Bargewell stuck his head in, General Major General Bar uh, Bargewell, who I think, I was told, was the most decorated active duty general in the Army at that moment. And he stuck his head in and said, you better turn on, turn on the TV. And uh, things took off from there. The world changed for sure. Let's, let's um, because I want to get into detail about that, but let's, let's take it back to Vietnam. And, you know, when, when you joined the Marine Corps and you went to Vietnam, did you have an idea of, or an understanding of what was taking place politically in, in that country as a grunt on the ground? I mean, well, when I went to Vietnam, I was 19 years old, just barely. And um, I, I had, a, I think, a, a passing understanding of what our mission and goal was in Vietnam. The official, here's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, like most guys who were keeping their eyes open, when I got there, I found out the reality on the ground didn't match the, what I had been told the goal was. And, and my overall impression, in a nutshell, was the guys on the other side, the, first the Viet Cong and then the North Vietnamese when we started to encounter them, um, they would fight like hell with very, in many cases, uh, really short on resources. On the other hand, the South Vietnamese Army, the Arvins, uh, there were some good Arvin units, I think. I never saw one, but I saw some that were not, certainly not combat effective. Um, and I began to think, I mean, you can see in a conflict, if there's one side that is filled with determination and uh, uh, pure grit, and the other side is a little bit uh, indifferent or lacking in commitment, um, there's not much question how that's going to turn out. 
And I wrote a letter to my parents, I think in June of 1967, said, this war's gonna be over within six months of the Americans leaving because the South Vietnamese are not, not effective, they're not capable. Turns out, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. um, I regret that. And there's certainly some lessons that we as a country should have learned, probably have, I certainly did. And one of them was, I don't want to see more guys go into situations where the intelligence, the understanding of the situation, the situational awareness is incomplete. If I can contribute to the understanding of what we're doing, uh, I'd like to do that. And that led me in the direction of the Central Intelligence Agency. I was just gonna say, it's, it, it almost seems like that specific experience in combat is what set the stage, or the, at least the foundation for how you maybe managed your own compass navigating through the Central Intelligence Agency? Well, and, and external circumstances contribute to that navigation mm -hmm. process. In my case, I got blown up the first day of the Tet Offensive, and some of the options that I might have considered, staying in the Marine Corps uh, or going back to college and get, then getting a commission, um, those were off the table. The, the injuries I sustained put those out of reach. So I had to find other ways to pursue what I wanted to do, which was, in a very, very broad sense, national service. Uh, I think I had to leave this world a, a better place than I found it. Uh, I raised my kids to believe that and, and that they should have, have some part of their life devoted to something larger the, than self. Hmm. And that's very rewarding. And I'm, I'm proud to say I'm the father of a labor and delivery nurse, bringing new Americans into the world and others, and a son who was a much better Marine than I was and served eight years on active duty, including a tour as a platoon commander in Afghanistan and then company commander on a second tour and then a company commander with second recon. And he went to some exotic and rough places uh, and did a very, very good job. I, I, I would have enjoyed seeing him stay in the Marine Corps. I think he was marked for greatness, but um, he told me major is the worst rank in the Marine Corps. And he didn't look forward to, I guess, four years being a battalion three or maybe a battalion XO if he was lucky. And, uh, and he got the wrong battalion commander at the wrong time yeah. in second recon. That, unfortunately, that, that's not an unusual yeah, circumstance. Yeah, works. Uh, so he, uh, he saw greener pastures in uh, other places, and now he is a lawyer in New Orleans. Wow, he followed in your footsteps with law, huh? Well, I, uh, I don't know that I would say he's following my footsteps. Uh, I, my footsteps moved at a, at a steady walk. His, is, his footsteps move at a good, yeah. good hard run, and he's, uh, he's doing... Uh, exceptionally well, I think, in, in the private practice of law. He's a trial lawyer. It's amazing. Talk to me about the explosion that you faced in, um, in the Tet Offensive. What happened and then what was your mindset during that time? Do you remember a lot about the specific things that were running through your mind as an afterthought? Well, I mean, that was, uh, what, 52 years ago. So mm -hmm. my recollections are a little vague and sketchy, but, but some things I remember quite clearly. Um, almost every, I, I was in a battalion CP, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. And we were a few miles south of Way at, the t at that time, a place called Fulak. 
And, you know, for the, what they call a FOB now, Ford Operating Base, um, the battalion's position was, it was just us. I mean, it wasn't no extension outside, no, no supporting elements nearby. And uh, like most Marine battalions and Army, Army units as well, all across Vietnam, we came under attack at the same time. And uh, we ha our position had been chosen to affect offensive operations. We were at the base of a mountain, and Marine units would go up that mountain. There was no thought given, as far as I could tell. I, mean, I was a Lance Corporal at the time. Uh, it didn't appear there's much thought given to what if... What if a whole bunch of NVA showed up on those slopes coming down this way? And that's exactly what happened. Uh, and we were, for the first time in my experience in Vietnam, we were clearly on the defensive and at a disadvantage tactically. Uh, they, they were coming down that mountainside. Uh, they, had their, they had clear view of us. Uh, the first hour of daylight, they blew up just about everything. Did the Tet Offensive kick off at daybreak where you were at, or was it night or it, early morning? Officially, I think, it, it, I mean, Tet is the Lunar New Year, and it started yeah. at midnight oh, on wow. February 1st, I think. Um, I, I know I was up at midnight, and I was uh, in the ammo bunker with a flashlight writing a letter, and we had what was called a uh, CAP unit, a civil action platoon. The Marines would live in a village, with the South Vietnamese, oh, it's like VSO now. It's like village stabilization operations. Exactly, yeah. and it was it was a successful program. The Marines mm -hmm. did very well in it. Well, the CAP, CAP unit was maybe a, a mile from us, uh, but their position all, all of a sudden at midnight lit up, uh, and it's clear they were under attack and, and a pretty pretty big one. Um, so I started waking my guys up. I was up because at one o'clock we were going to be the duty gun to fire what are called H&Is, harassment and interdiction, uh, until dawn. So I just I started waking everybody up because I thought, we're going to get hit. And sure enough, uh, they started dropping mortars on us about then. But it was dark, and they couldn't see very well, so the rounds were falling more or less at random. But when it got light, they could see us, mm. and, and their firing became less random and uh, very effective. So we were, we were really back on our heels. And... Uh, with every unit of our size in Vietnam under attack, there was no air support available. All the aircraft were at some other place mm -hmm. uh, that had a higher priority than us. So we were pretty much on our own. And I was a, uh, uh, an artilleryman in the artillery battery that was organic to the infantry battalion. And I think I am one of the few Marine artillerymen around who dropped the tube and fired direct fire at oncoming troops. Mm. Uh, the, you know, those 105s were made to shoot indirect fire yeah. over the hill and uh, out to 12,000 meters. But that morning, they were coming down those slopes and it was just, you know, it's like, ha like having a big rifle. Um, a real big rifle. <laughs> a real big rifle. And, uh, and then they put a mortar around, uh, first they put a mortar around on a gun. Uh, let me back up. They put a rocket in the ammo bunker which was not finished, didn't have a roof. And it, the rocket hit, but it had walls made of ammo, 105 ammo boxes, which are wood and filled with dirt and double, double thickness walls. 
those walls absorbed the explosion of that rocket, but the concussion knocked us all down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the ammo bunker was on fire. And a lot of 105 rounds in there. You, know, you don't want to hang around when those things are cooking off. So we bailed out, uh, got over the parapet, and just in time. I got in my fighting hole right outside the parapet, and just about the time I got in that hole, they put a mortar round right on the breech ring of our gun. Ooh. I mean, couldn't have been a more direct hit. And uh, uh, at that point, I became a, <laughs> an infantry rifleman because that's all that we had left. Uh-huh. Our gun was gone. And uh, that was... Uh, that was mid-morning, I think, and uh, I was digging a fighting hole for a new guy who had just joined m- my gun crew, brand new. He didn't have a fighting hole, hadn't dug one yet. And so I said, come on, I'm going to make mine bigger. We'll, we'll expand mine, you get in it. And we were digging that hole, and they put a mortar on right on both of us. Wow. And uh, next thing I knew, I was in Hawaii. Wow. Do you remember the actual explosion, or you, you just checked out? I, I remember, um, I remember the sensation of someone with about a ten-pound sledgehammer standing over my head and hitting me on the left ear as hard as he could. Wow! That's how it felt, and then one of the places I got hit, uh, and uh, and I fell down the bottom of the hole. Uh, and I didn't know which way was up. I mean, seriously, I, I can remember not knowing um, where I was or how to get out. And I was eating dirt. I mean, I was really down in the bottom of the hole. And, uh, but I could tell that there was a lot of blood coming out. It turned out my carotid artery was cut. And if, you, if that happens, you know it. I mean, there's blood going up in the air. And I was yelling for a corpsman. And we had uh, two corpsmen with us who were uh, Quakers. They were conscientious objectors, and they wouldn't carry a gun. But they were good corpsmen. And one of them got up there and got his fingers in the wound, and I think he saved my life. And if I could find him, I certainly would buy him a beer, but I have never been successful in doing that. Uh, anyway, he got me, got the bleeding stopped and got it fixed up. And I don't, and then I got a couple hits of morphine, and I don't remember much after that. Mm. But uh, I, got, uh, I got medevac to Hawaii. The Tet Offensive, there were so many casualties that the, the, what they call the Pacific Ring of hospitals, Okinawa, Guam, Japan, I think, um, Philippines, mm-hmm. they were all full. And so for the guys who were either so short that their tour would be over before they got out of the hospital or were so badly injured that they weren't going to go back, those guys, they started flying to Hawaii. And uh, we, I was in the first uh, medevacs to Hawaii, the first bunch of us. And the Marine Corps, being uh, conscious of its image, had the airplane stop at Clark Airfield in the Philippines, where they had tailors at the side of the runway in a little hangar and racks of, of uniforms. And they sewed our chevrons on, and they issued, They knew what ribbons we, we were entitled to. They got us all fitted out in, in what we call tropical uniforms in those days. Um, because the commanding general of the 1st Marine Amphibious Brigade in Kaneohe Bay was going to welcome us as the first Marine medevacs. And so if you could walk, 
You're going to walk off the plane. You got a uniform. And so we, we got to, um, I got to Hawaii, and I had a great big bandage on the side of my head. I had a big hole in the side of my head. And, uh, and it was a long flight, and the bandage soaked through. And so blood and serum dripped down on my uniform, my left shoulder. And the plane lands in, <laughs> at, uh, I think it's Hickam Field mm-hmm. uh, in Hawaii. And there truly was, no kidding, a red carpet. And the, uh, a Marine band with white gloves. Oh, and, wow. the, and the general was there, big, tall, uh, very slim general. I don't remember his name. Brigadier. But the, his, his food chewer, uh, first lieutenant, comes on the plane and says, all right, all you Marines who can walk, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to march you single file down the, uh, the stair thing. Um, and then we'll march in step. I'll count cadence. Out in front of the general, I'll call you to a halt. You do a left face. He's going to pin your purple hearts on and welcome you to Hawaii. And then he looks at me. He goes, Corporal, what's that crap on your uniform? I said, well, sir, my bandage, you know, soaking through and nothing I can do. <laughs> and he looks at me. He says, you stay on the plane. The general doesn't want to see a Marine with crap all over his uniform. Seriously. <laughs> and in the meantime... The guys who are on stretchers on the plane, they're going out the back of the plane to an ambulance bus. Yeah. The guys are carrying them. And I'm standing there on the plane. I don't know what to do. I'm watching the guys march down and get the purple hearts. I finally just strolled out the back of the plane, got on the, on the bus with the stretchers. That was my welcome to Hawaii. Wow. And, you know, for, for a long time, uh, I thought and was told by others, that lieutenant was really wrong. That the general didn't feel that way. He should have had you marching out there. Yeah. No, no general would be like that. But the older I got, the more senior I got, the more generals I dealt with. The That's more probably th- true. The more I thought <laughs> that lieutenant knew what he was talking about. <laughs> so you, you get done with the military, and um, I'm assuming like a medical discharge or because of the injury, they, you, you had the option to... To step away, how did that work out back then? Because it's well, back different then, times. Back know? then, it was about as clumsy as it could be. Mm. When I got out of the hospital, uh, they the, the policy was to send you to the first, the, the nearest duty station. Mm-hmm. And so I was in Oakland Naval Hospital, and the nearest duty station was Treasure Island, which in the middle of San Francisco Bay, and that was uh, fleet headquarters for whatever fleet protects the West Coast. And under normal circumstances, they had a Marine garrison of. I, I don't know, maybe 40, mm-hmm. you know, guys with a gate and on brig and all that. But sending guys out of the hospital, we had so many casualties. When I got down there, there were, um, I think, close to 400. I mean, people were just sitting around drinking coffee and eating donuts all day because there's nothing for them to do. Wow. And the paperwork to get them reassigned, send them to the fleet, send them back to Camp Lejeune, wherever, it just took a long time. And so I got down there. Uh, now, actually, this happened at the hospital. When they were discharging me, the attending physician said, you, you know, you, you, you're no good. You're, you have a profile. You can't do all these things. You're out of the Marine Corps. Uh, and I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll put in for a medical. He said, don't do that because the processing for a medical discharge is so backed up that your end of active duty, which was about, uh, four months out, mm-hmm. he said, they'll still be screwing around with your paperwork when your end of active duty comes, and they will put you on hold. They'll keep you on active duty 
until they get their paperwork done to put you out. Mm. So if you really want to get out on schedule in August and go back to college, my advice is just go down there and serve, go wherever they send you, and uh, they'll have to honor your profile. I couldn't be around loud noise. I couldn't lift stuff. I, I'd taken one through and through in the, my left bicep. Uh, so that's what I did. I, I, uh, I just went down to Treasure Island, and my job was to type. Everybody had a little blue meal card mm -hmm. that they could show in the mess hall. And every new Marine that checked in, he got an ID and he got a meal card. And I was the meal card guy. <laughs> <laughs> I typed about four meal cards a day. And it takes about, I type with two fingers, and it took me about probably two to three minutes to type a meal card. So on an average day, I would put in 12 minutes of hard labor. And I was in this little office, small room, and the only other occupant of that office was a gunnery sergeant uh, who was married to the Marine Corps. I mean, he was a through and through uh, career Marine. And he had uh, lost a leg. He was a tanker. Oh, wow. And he lost a leg in Vietnam. And he received a Navy Cross, which, as wow. you know, is yeah. it's next to the Medal of Honor and in some cases, it seems even harder to get than a Medal of Honor because you have to survive to get it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he di he didn't have anything to do except watch me, <laughs> and he would uh, he would converse with me, and uh, every conversation included uh, addressing me as Sergeant Smith because in those days, if you would re-enlist, you got an automatic bump up. Yeah. I was a corporal, and if I'd re-enlisted. Um, I would be a sergeant. So he assumed that you were bumping up, or did he just He just He wanted me to. He yeah. said, Corporal Smith, you're the kind of NCO the Marine Corps needs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you in here. I'm going I'm to get you to stay. I'm going to talk you into it. And he did. He worked on me every day. And finally, I, you know, I, just, I don't know what was in my head, but I just had enough. And I said, Gunny, look, um, I, I, I enlisted. I did my duty. I went to Vietnam. I got blown up. Uh, I got plans of my own, and that mm -hmm. they mean getting out in August and going back to college. I'm sorry, but that's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And man, it was like telling him <laughs> his baby was ugly. He, he, uh, of all the guys sitting around eating donuts, I'm, I'm the one who got a, what they called a speed letter mm -hmm. to headquarters uh, Marine Corps, reassign his corporal, get him assigned. And the next day, I had orders for 7th 155-millimeter gun battery, 29 palms, FMF Pacific, get down there. What, what was I going to do in a 155-gun battery? Yeah. Well, I can't be On around profile. loud noise, can't lift <laughs> ammo. So it was basically it was go down to 29 palms and wait for my discharge. And that was, that was difficult because we had a platoon sergeant named, and I'm not making this up, Sergeant Bleak. Mm. And Sergeant Bleak... Uh, I'm not sure he hated me on sight, but it didn't take long. And, uh, and he, was, he dedicated himself to tormenting me. I, that was basically the corporal of the guard at 29 Palms mm -hmm. uh, while I waited for my discharge and, and my release from active duty. And that's what I did. Carried a 45 and five rounds and posted my sentries. I had the uh, 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift, I think. Wow. <laughs> Did that for months or was it no, just a, it was, weeks? No, uh, it was about four or five weeks, I think. So uh, let's talk about the, I think it's real interesting about the Nazi thing as uh, a lawyer. Now, how, talk us through that because at that time period, 
these Nazis were discovered because they were trying to migrate? No, they were here. They oh, were already, already here. here. Yeah, there's a little background. Um, in 1949, the Congress passed a thing called the Displaced Persons Act mm -hmm. because there were in Europe large, uh, basically encampments of uh, people who ha had been displaced by the events of World War II. Mm -hmm. They were people who had come west to avoid the Russians. And you know, 1949, in this country, anybody who was trying to avoid the Russians was a friend of ours. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the depths of the Cold War and the beginning of the McCarthy period, uh, so Congress passed this thing to, to facilitate the entry of displaced persons into the United States. And once here, they could begin the process of applying for citizenship. And uh, they had um, uh, military intelligence brigade interviewers in the DP camps, and they'd say, Mike, where were you in 1941, 1945? And they pretty much had to take your word for it. Uh, you know, there are no records. The whole world, their, their world had been blown up. And most of the people were, you know, college professors who expressed the wrong ideas or somebody who would be unpopular with the communist government in Eastern Europe. But amongst all of those sheep, there were a few goats. And those were guys who had actively participated in the Nazi apparatus. Uh, and if you study that era and the, and the German programs, they employed indigenous police and paramilitary units who were very eager, having been liberated from the Russians. They, were, they threw themselves into the arms of the Germans. Mm. And so it was Ukrainian police who rounded up Ukrainian Jews and put them on trains. It was Estonian National Guard who put people in camps and shot them. Yeah, so, they're like partisans of... No, they were, I mean, remember in, in 1940, uh, 41, June of 41, I think, the Germans came east and they pushed the Russians out of all those places. And all the people who'd been living under the Russians were happy to see the Russians go and, and they welcomed the Germans for the most part as liberators. And there were many who were politically aligned with the German point of view. Yeah. And they willingly uh, uh, joined the German infrastructure as local police. Um, uh, most of the guys who walked the wire in concentration camps were not Germans. They were, they were locals of the... Ukrainians, Belarusians, yeah. Estonians, Latvians. Uh, and in fact, so many... Uh, citizens of those countries liberated, with air quotes, by the Germans. Um, there were so many of them that the Germans were able to form SS legions in each country. Hmm. There was a Latvian legion, there was an Estonian legion. There even was a, um, a, 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 a an SS legion formed in Bosnia of Bosnian Muslims, and they wore fezes as part of their uniform. Wow. Uh, a lot of strange facts. Anyway, Back to the DP camps, the military intelligence interviewers, you know, a guy came and sat down and said, I was in university from 1941 to 42, and then the university closed, and I worked in a dairy until the end of the war. Okay, sounds good to me. Off you go. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people came into this country, and, and uh, the INS, through various sources, came to know that some of these guys had been... Uh, active participants in the Nazi abusive 
the civilian population. What's the numbers like? Give me a, what's the... Well, when we started, there were, I think there were only about 30 cases. Oh, wow. But once we got going and developed our skills, we had historians on staff, um, a lot of people traveling all the time, gathering evidence. Uh, that office, uh, the last Nazi that they prosecuted, I don't know what number it was, but it was just last year. The wow. guy was about 99. <laughs> but, um, you know, the things that they did were so dreadful. So... Yeah so unbelievably horrible that there really isn't any statute of limitations on that kind of, of crime. Yeah. And so what we had to do once a person was identified, uh, we had to take them to court. Most of them had become, in the meantime, naturalized citizens. And to take away a person's United States citizenship is a very grave step. You had to go into district court, United States District Court and prove that this individual, we weren't trying to prove the crimes. You didn't have to prove that he supervised the execution of so many Jews and others. All we had to prove was that he lied to get his visa. Oh. Uh, once your visa is obtained by fraud, a deception, then everything that comes after can be undone. Mm -hmm. So once I've, I've proven that you uh, obtained your visa by a false statement, then the judge can re uh, revoke your citizenship. And after that, we had to take the individual to through the uh, Bureau of Immigration Appeals, something like that, there were immigration courts, and have them ordered deported. Mm -hmm. And the, the difficulty was uh, that the only place they could be deported to was the country of which they were, had been a citizen or the country from which they departed to the United States. Well, in many cases, like the people in the Baltic republics, we didn't recognize the Soviet occupation of those republics. Officially, on the U.S. maps, they were independent countries, but they weren't. Of course, they were occupied by the Russians. And uh, uh, nobody wanted to send them back to those places. Mm -hmm. And the countries they departed from were Western European countries. They didn't want them. Uh, so it was a difficult process to, to arrange, negotiate, for the return of an individual, but we did. I prosecuted a, an Estonian and he was returned to Estonia. Uh, were they prosecuted in Estonia or just because you had the lying, they were just deported, not prosecuted because there was no evidence against them? Well, no, there, there was ample evidence. Because the, only, uh, the only way we could get their uh, uh, citizenship revoked in district court was to demonstrate through evidence. Much of it obtained from uh, either German archives or from the Russians, the Soviets in those days. Yeah. And there was a big political um, dispute over whether we should ever accept Soviet evidence because, of course, they had been so active in, in producing false documents and yeah. they produced a false copy, a false edition of Time magazine. Uh, but they were willing to provide these old documents from World War II and allow the FBI to subject them to forensic examination in the lab. And the FBI could come back and say, well, this paper is that old. The ink on this paper is that old. There's no evidence of, of alteration or screwing around. So uh, we got those documents in for the most part. Yeah. Uh, but so that all that evidence existed. And once a person was deported and he went back to Estonia or Ukraine, then it was up to the authorities there to um, uh, prosecute him or not. 
And the cases I remember, the individuals were old enough and under enough stress that they had a bunch of medical issues by the time they got to uh, wherever we, they were going to be deported. And in one case, the guy died before he, we could deport him. Mm -hmm. um, but at that point, it was up to the local authorities. Yeah. Uh, You're, you managed to wrangle how many total? You said four? I, pros I prosecuted four in my three years. Um, Any significance out of those that you remember the uh, the particular story on on who they were and what they did? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, one was a very uh, intelligent, uh, uh, aggressive, ambitious Estonian. Uh, he was only I think twenty one or twenty three. Wow! But he was already a, an officer in the National Guard, and for, because of his talents, it's a small country. And they only had about 1,200 Jews left in Estonia because uh, when the Russians were pushed out by the Germans, the Russians went east, about half of Estonia's Jews went with them. Uh, another significant number went across the Gulf of Finland to Sweden, uh, but the 1,200 remained. And this individual, they were, they were all concentrated in one camp and they were all killed. And Estonia was the only country that Himmler formally congratulated in writing for making itself Jew-free, Judenfrei. Wow. So him I remember, uh, and I'll tell you a story about him. He was a, a fine, upstanding American citizen. And this is typical of these guys. They kept their lawns mowed, kept their house painted, they were good citizens, had a flag out front. And this guy had lived in, in Greenlawn, Long Island, and he had two daughters born in this country. And uh, there was no, he had never given any indication of his wartime activities, except uh, one time his he told his neighbor, who was a New York City fireman, uh, there was a, an article in the New York Times that said this guy had been tried in absentia in Estonia and found guilty for being an officer of the, the uh, National Guard unit that was running this camp and killing people. And they, the firemen in this Estonian carpooled. And so that morning, uh, they got in a car and the fireman said, hey, I saw this article about you and said that you did all these things. And the, the defendant, the guy who's going to be a defendant, said, no, don't worry about it. I was just a guard. I was just in the guards. Well, that's enough. And it wasn't true anyway. He wasn't just a guard. He was the head of the thing. Um, so uh, in moving against him, the proceedings are civil in nature. They're not criminal cases. We're just trying to revoke citizenship. We're not proving underlying crimes. And so I had to go through discovery, you know, serve uh, interrogatories and take depositions and collect all the evidence. Took depositions in Estonia, which was very interesting. Wow. You actually traveled? Yeah. To the, wow. Uh, and so at the very end of, as we moved to the, final stage before trial, I wanted to depose the defendant. And uh, he had already indicated, I'd never heard his voice. He'd never said a word in my presence, ever. He had a lawyer who was, the son, who was a Latvian by, uh, his father had been in Latvia, served in the Latvian Legion, SS Legion. And this lawyer was a pretty much a Nazi himself. He was not a very good lawyer. Uh, he insisted that the defendant was going to take the Fifth Amendment to any question. And so we had to go back to court, and I had to move uh, the 
court to say, you don't have a Fifth Amendment. Uh, You're not a citizen. Yeah. No, he was a citizen. He's oh. still a citizen. We're trying to take his citizenship at that point. But there was no criminal proceeding in existence. Oh. We, we couldn't prosecute him because he hadn't committed the crime in the United States. And there was no indication that there was a criminal proceeding pending anywhere else, including Estonia. So no Fifth Amendment. Answer the questions. Now, if we go back and try to depose the guy, and he keeps t uh, insisting on the, taking a Fifth Amendment uh, protection, he is in contempt of court. The court has ordered him to testify, and he did that. We went, I, I knew he was going to do it. So we went into a small room in the basement of the courthouse in Long Island, and it was the defendant, the defendant's uh, lawyer, uh, court reporter, and me. That's it. And I, I had to ask the guy about enough questions to demonstrate that he was going to take the fifth to every question I asked him, no matter what. That's all I, all I had to do. So I asked about 35 questions, and I felt that I had done that. So I said, okay, that's enough. Uh, let me look at my notes here. Uh, let's take a 10-minute break, and then we'll see where we go. Uh, the court reporter went down the hall to the ladies' room. The defense lawyer went down the hall to the men's room, and there was just me and the defendant whose voice I had never heard. And he looks at me and he says, they were only Jews. Wow. That's something that will stay with you. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. And later they, they made a movie out of two of my cases. They kludged two of my cases together in a movie called um, The Music Box, mm -hmm. which is a story about a guy, one of these guys who has an American-born daughter we can't believe that daddy would do anything like that. This is all lies. And, mm -hmm. and she stands by her father and, uh, until she's looking at an old music box that he has and she finds in, in it a photograph of her father in some Nazi kind of uniform with his foot up on a pile of corpses. Wow. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the scales fall from her eyes. Um, that, that happened in the Estonian case. The, the guy had a daughter who uh, was insistent that he was being persecuted by the Soviets, and he was an innocent man and a good man, a good father, yada, 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 um, until she saw the evidence, mm -hmm. and it was, it was unequivocal, mm -hmm. his, his signature on orders to kill people, including children. Yeah. Um, that changed her mind. What's, what's your personal opinion on, you know, you got these guys and they're being prosecuted even currently today. Like you just said, there was a recent prosecution. And the place, because you understand war, so there's people who are involved in war and they're put in difficult circumstances, which doesn't negate the fact that they're murderers or killers or whatever they may be. But uh, based off the circumstance, which is war, they do certain things. And then after the fact, they become upstanding citizens and they're, they're living their lives, trying to maybe seek their own redemption, or maybe they're just evil. Um, and you kind of live that on both sides of the spectrum, being in war, but then seeing the dark side of war and then dealing with these guys. Is there any redemption in that? Is there any, is there any position or place that these people could be in where to live their lives out as 70, 80, 90-year-olds we just leave them be, or is it just unforgivable? Well, I'm not sure. I think you're talking about two populations. One is just people who, are, who have served in combat 
and find themselves in a situation where something happens and it's regrettable mm -hmm. and they would change it. Um, they should, should be horrified by it. But, you know, if you're taking sniper fire from two windows of a house and so you put a javelin into that house and it turn out, turns out there was a mother and two kids in the corner. Um, I'm sure, that, you know, you'll carry that regret and that, that sorrow and, and uh, all of your life and want to get those people back. Mm -hmm. um, that's a different matter than joining an organization that from, the, from dawn to dusk is devoted to rounding up people because of their religion uh, or because they're gypsies or because they're some other group that was you know, disabled people and, and actively killing them day in and day out in a, in a program of mass murder. That's in a class by itself. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to say that a guy can't have a profound change of heart at some point. Maybe. But it's, that seems unlikely to me. And even if he does it, I, I can't forgive those actions. Yeah, lining up little children. I mean, these are not kids that you didn't know were in the house when the javelin hit it. These are kids you've lined up on the side of a ditch. I, I don't know, You're, Mike. That's a, that's a very deep question. How, uh, what are the dimensions and depth of a human soul? How, yeah. how much can you? How. how how do you change yourself from that kind of creature to a real human being? Yeah. I mean, it's I, wars against humanity. It's like crimes against humanity, right? It's I, not just specific instances. Yeah. And in fact, that office that was created to chase Nazis in 1970, I think it's 1979, actually. Um, it's still in existence. It morphed into, rather than just being the Office of Special Investigations and doing Nazi cases, they, they, they gradually evolved into doing uh, human rights abuses and, and uh, individuals committing uh, war crimes all over. Mm -hmm. uh, that's as much as I know about their brief. I've been away from it for a long time. I, I want to ask you a question because I, 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 it ties into this, and you you stated that very well because you cleared the, you know, you you put a line and divided the two examples of the difference between warfare and mistakes that are made versus tyranny and oppressive people that are murdering and killing. Um, I often get asked about tyranny and I get asked like, hey, you know, th there's a California uh, politician who's taken away people's guns and there's a, you know, a, a new law that changes the type of buttstock where there's a cop who arrested this person uh, unjustly, and there's a, you know, a, a SWAT team who, actually, who killed an uh, innocent person on a raid, and younger generations, younger men, continue to use the word tyrannical when they associate those instances and those examples, um, because they blanket the entire institution. Right? They say if a cop is bad, then all cops are bad. They're murderers. They're tyrannical, and you're somebody who knows the difference between tyranny. And oppression, and then what this might be. I just want to get your uh, your take on this because uh, I feel like because we're so loose with social media, we're so we're very loose with words, and we say things like we call 
our administration Nazis or white nationalists. Uh, and then we call people who I think make mistakes. Like you said, the guy who shoots the javelin, he had no intent. There was a mistake made. Was it the chain of command that prompted the soldier to make the mistake? Was it the individual? And I, I try to educate people that being part of these institutions and understanding how all this works, that it's rare to see something like true tyranny, which is Nazi Germany, which is Joseph Stalin's Russia. Uh, what would you say would be the, the difference between tyranny and maybe what the, in the examples, what I'm talking about with people's or especially young men's perspective, what they think is tyranny, what they think is oppression? Well, you hit on a, a subject that, that um, I spend a lot of time worrying about, and that's the, the force and effect of social media. I think we've created a, a Frankenstein's monster because it, uh, it not only allows, but I think in many cases encourages people uh, who, who have the protection of anonymity or distance. Everything's up there in, in, on, on Facebook or, or Instagram, whatever they're using. Um, and they can pretty much say whatever they want. And they get infected with, with ideas that, that appeal to them. And uh, they get persuaded because they see so many people saying with such vehemence that this is tyranny, that they start to actually believe that. Mm. And uh, it's not. Police make mistakes. Legislators consider statutes that you might not agree with. You might think of, uh, uh, what was the buttstock that? Uh, yeah, short barrel rifle. Yeah, short barrel, all those things. Um, I mean, there, there's an honest debate. Uh, I'm a gun owner. Mm -hmm. and, and uh, uh, have been for a long time. Uh, but I think there is, an, uh, there is an honest debate, and you need to keep your mind open and consider uh, the, the legitimate arguments and develop the ability. And I used to tell this to young CIA officers who I was responsible for training. If you don't say, hey, you might be right at least once, every two or three weeks, then you're not listening and your mind is not open because the people you talk to, you might not like their ideas at first, but if you listen carefully, there's going to come a time when you can think, that guy's right. You know, he's saying something that I hadn't thought about. And that's growth. Um, I, I remember being in Georgetown uh, as a uh, mid-career in the agency. I wasn't, I was just out on the street doing something, but there was a young guy in sandals on the corner, and he had a sign that said, start a revolution. <laughs> and I said, hey, you know, I've been in a couple of revolutions and you wouldn't like it. <laughs> it's <laughs> uh, so true. And, and, and people, I'll, I'll give you an example of, of what I think, uh, I, I came right up close and personal to tyranny. Uh, I was uh, posted to Berlin. Uh, the wall had just come down and we had free run of the place. There were still 30,000 Russians there with no place to go. And I had a, a German contact, a, a guy who's older than I was. He had a daughter who was 18 or 19, so he was maybe 50, I don't know. Uh, but I liked him, and, and he, he, was an East, he had been an East German, and, uh, and he spoke very eloquently. And I said, tell me what it meant to you personally to live under a regime like the GDR, the German Democratic Republic. 
He said, well, I'll tell you. Uh, I, I was a, a, I forget what he was, a chemist or something. But he said, I was a party member. I did all the things I was supposed to do, that I had to do. Um, and one day the Stasi, the, the secret police, the state security of East Germany, two agents or officers came to him and said, hey, let's call him Hans. Hans, uh, we've been looking at your file and you've been a good party member and you're a good man, looks good to you. And uh, we know that your daughter has done very well in secondary school and that she really wants to go to the university. But you know, the university's full. A lot of people who want to go there. So we need to see that the only people who go are children of really, really deep believing party members. You got to show us that. And what you can do to show us that is report on the activities of these of your neighbors. And they gave him names. I said, what did you do? He said, what could I do? I wanted my daughter to go to college, to university. Mm. And he had tears in his eyes because his government had forced him at the, at the price of his daughter's future to report on the activities of his unknowing neighbors. And that's not something that most people would want to do. And that's just a little vignette, I think, mm. of what real tyranny is. Uh, real tyranny is the police can come to your house anytime they want without a warrant, uncontrolled, and drag you out and make you disappear. Um, our police make mistakes and raid the wrong house, and you know, certainly dash cameras have shown that some guys, acting uh, police officers, are undisciplined in their professional duties. But by and large, our legal system, our police system, our constitutional protections are a marvel. They're a wonder. They're mm -hmm. one of the reasons people still want to come to this country. Mm -hmm. Last time I checked, people were not getting in boats in Florida and paddling to Cuba. The boats are coming the other way. And the reason is because you, you can live your life here in the pursuit of happiness, and you have all kinds of legal protections. And um, if the police do make a mistake, you can sue their butts off if you're, you know, if you're still alive. Uh, so... I'm very proud of, uh, of our country, of our institutions. And, and that's one of the reasons. I don't, I don't want to talk partisan politics, but as an intelligence officer, it has been very difficult for me to, see, to watch the uh, undermining and, and uh, hollowing out and dismissing of the intelligence community by this administration. Yeah. I mean, it's just, um, it's, it's a real shame. Yeah, I don't like that. And I, I don't like people's, I mean, it, this is something that always happens in society where you have fringe movements that think fringe things where they think the CIA is a deep state of terrorists. And, you know, my experience with the Central Intelligence Agency was it, it had the most talented American patriots uh, in the United States. And, and they were all talented. They were very intelligent and they were there to serve their country. And it was for a national belief that they were protecting our democracy and our way of life by doing their job. And um, we'll talk about that in getting into the 9-11 thing. Um, so when... Let, let me just interject something there. Yes, sir. Uh, I think I want people to know, if the average American could go inside the Central Intelligence Agency and walk around for a week or so, what he or she would find is an incredibly professional, dedicated, capable, and apolitical workforce. I mean, people all have their personal 
political views, but you won't hear them in the workplace, and you won't see it reflected in their work. Yeah, that's my experience. I've ne- I've never seen an exception to that. Yeah, I, I worked with a case officer overseas, and he was African American. He was gay. He was Ivy League uh, trained. He was a veteran, and I was like, "Where can you work where he fits every single?" Um, you know, ethnic, even sometimes biased and judged. And, and he's sitting there as a patriot doing his job and just crushing it. And, and nobody's judging him. Everybody loved him. He was like one of the most professional dudes I ever worked with. And we loved him. We loved protecting him. Um, let's get to, to 9-11 because this, this is a, I mean, I look at you as a, an archive of history and I'm glad we get to, I'm glad we get to talk. We get to an interview with an ancestor. We do. <laughs> look back in time, but I'm glad we get to capture these moments on this podcast because it, it means that, you know, our kids can listen to it and our future can uh, be inspired. But on 9-11, uh, a significant moment in our history, I remember where I was. You were the Special Activities Division Chief at the time. That's correct. That general came in. And then where do you go from there? What, what it, it must have been chaotic. It had well, to have been chaotic. Well, literally, uh, where I went, I, I was scheduled to fly back to Northern Virginia. But every civilian aircraft was grounded. Couldn't fly. Mm-hmm. So uh, we hustled around, and the guys I was with uh, started, and I started driving from Tampa north. And another group started driving from Northern Virginia south. And we linked up, I think, in Roanoke Rapids or somewhere in Midway. Mm-hmm. And I got out of one car and got in the other and, and made my way back to uh, headquarters. But you're right. I mean, the, the, the world had changed. We were, were profoundly shaken. And uh, for us, the, the intelligence officers, uh, personally, the, the, the biggest environmental change was we, we, we had been totally surprised by that attack. We were caught off guard. There were people in the agency, I know one, uh, I knew one quite well, who were warning about this guy, Bin Laden, who had a lot of money and who had declared war on the United States two years earlier in a fatwa. And they said, this guy's a danger. He's going to do something. But that's as far as it got. We didn't know when or where or how. So after the World Trade Center, the, the I hate to say panic, because that suggests a lack of control, but it was close to panic. Where's the next one coming from? And what are we going to do about it? So you're thinking of force protection at that I'm moment. We're yeah. thinking of protection of this country. Yeah. Uh, and, and we got the ticket to pursue that question aggressively. And uh, pretty well known, we had lawyers who said, you can waterboard a guy, you can do these things, do these things. Go and find out what's, what's cooking. And we briefed uh, on the Hill. We briefed both uh, key senators and key Congress persons um, about what we intended to do in the enhanced interrogation program, among other things. And I can tell you, as an eyewitness, that there was no one, no one, who said, "Ew, don't do that." Mm-hmm. Their responses were somewhere between "Okay," and "Is that all you can do?" I mean, they were in it. They they wanted. Answers. They wanted us to go after people. And of course, a number of those senators and congressmen got amnesia uh, in <laughs> ensuing months when the smoke cleared and things were stable. They didn't, they didn't recall have any, having any uh, notice of those techniques. And uh, 
I know the debate about enhanced interrogation. A lot of people, the FBI as an organization has said, we wouldn't do that, we don't do that, you don't get good answers. And there is certainly something to be said for that. People under duress will often tell you uh, what they think you want to hear. They'll make up stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, there, are, there certainly are instances where uh, the enhanced interrogation program produced key intelligence. And uh, I still bristle at all of the experts who now have signed up to, it was torture. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's the word for it, it's torture. Well, uh, our program didn't maim, cripple, or permanently disable anybody. There was nothing that we did that compares to what an Iraqi can do with an electric drill. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just needed answers. And Diane, Senator Feinstein, as you may know, did a, a st- big, thick staff report about how awful we were. And they did it without interviewing a single agency officer. Wow. And they cherry-picked all the information they wanted, and they, they came to the conclusion that they had intended, which was we were bad guys and, and the program didn't work. And the kind of things they did, my favorite example is they said, not only did they use these techniques, but they used them to a- ask questions to which they already had the answer. As if we were just uh, sadists out to inflict as much discomfort as we could. Well, think about it for a minute. If you're an intelligence officer or a, a police investigator or a journalist and an individual source gives you a key piece of information, you got it from one source, what's the very next thing you're going to do? What do you want? What do you need? You need corroboration. You need a second source who is not aware of the first who corroborates the information you gathered. That's what's going on when you ask somebody a question to which you already have an answer. If an individual in another site under interrogation has said, I was at a meeting in Kuwait City on, on, on this date, and there were five people present, and these are the names. All right, and if you have this guy over here in another place, and you get him to say, I, yeah, I was in Kuwait City, and I was in a meeting, and there were five people, in this, and, it, and it corroborates, it matches. That's why you ask a person a question that you already have an answer to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's we, very deliberate tactics. It's not just willy nilly. Just no, and it's not just sadism for its own sake. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I will never apologize for having been uh, peripherally involved in that. My guys were on the rendition planes, the shooters, our planes, uh, medics. Uh, some of our guys were in the black sites that had been exposed, and nobody had to serve there who didn't want to. One of my officers came back from a black site and said, "I don't want to go back there." I don't want to do that anymore. That's fine. That's fine. You, uh, we got other things for you to do. And I told all my guys who were involved in anything like that. Um, there was a, a presidential finding that authorized us to, to take those steps. Mm-hmm. I said, you read the, the, that finding, and you know what it says. So that if you are presented with a task or a, an order that you think exceeds that finding, and you know it by heart, then the answer is no, sir. You don't go outside. Don't go outside those four corners. And you sign this one that says, I've read that finding. I know what it says. And if in doubt, I won't. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I said, you should be prepared for a good part of the rest of your career to be spent explaining what you did in this program. Yeah. You're going to be hectored to death for months, if not years. Yeah. And I think that's been true. So you, you guys already knew that there was going to potentially be fallout. So you had the right 
parameters set in place sure. to, for the expectation. You, you might remember early on in this conversation, I said CIA has three missions, FI, CI, and covert action. And a lot of the FI guys, the, the traditionalists, don't like covert action because it's doing something. It's committing an affirmative act, uh, raising a, a, a tribal army or uh, uh, disrupting a, a, a crooked election or something like that. It's a visible act. So you've already given away half of your protection. You're not clandestine. Mm -hmm. Nobody's, uh, it's not a matter of no one knows you did it. If you're a clandestine FI collector, you meet with your asset late at night, he gives you intelligence. Nobody knows you, if you're doing it right, nobody knows you met, nobody knows of your relationship, nobody knows anything. That's clandestinity. If, on the other hand, you're doing something covert, well, the whole world knows that there's a 10,000 tribesmen up in the hills who all of a sudden have pretty good uh, small unit training and they're armed. Where'd that come from? Uh, and, and keeping our hand hidden, keeping U.S. governments apart in it, uh, concealed, is, is very difficult. And in some cases, it, it won't withstand uh, sustained scrutiny and, and, and investigation, especially in an information age where um, a, a person sitting at a desk can do a tremendous amount of investigative searching. Mm -hmm. And if you're using airplanes, for example, in a clandestine program, covert program, sorry, those airplanes got to have tail numbers. They got to have owners of record. They got to file flight plans. So it's, it's difficult to keep a, a big covert program like that uh, covert for very long. And I, we proved that. Was Mike Spann one of your guys? Yes. So talk to me about Mike Spann. When, so when this was happening, I was in the infantry and I was going to become a Green Beret. And I read about Mike Spann and obviously this was in the information age and technology and TV was blasting media all over the place. There were uh, a lot of good videos not good, but videos that came out of the uh, encampment that Mike Spann and the other intelligence officer, which I used to know his name, no longer know his name. Um, but did you personally get to meet Mike Spann or, and talk to me about him and the, and the way that played out, if you can? Mike Spann worked for me. Um, I was a division chief, and the division had uh, uh, groups it was composed of groups. Mm -hmm. And when the biggest and most prominent uh, group was Special uh, Operations Group, which included Ground Branch and others. So when I say Mike worked for me, he worked in Ground Branch, and he had a couple of bosses between him and me. But at the end of the day, if he had to go see the old man, I was the old man. Mm -hmm. and, and I tried to get to know all my guys. Um, I had great respect and admiration for them. Um, Mike was a... Uh, an interesting case. He was a former uh, Marine captain. I think he was an artilleryman. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't someone that we had picked because he had all these soft skills already. He didn't come out of a soft unit. Um, he just was a, a heart of oak. I mean, he was a solid guy who you could depend on to get the job done and to stay at it until it was done and to do it uh, without fear. I really liked him. He was a newlywed. He married another agency officer. Uh, and um, his, he was the first American to die in Afghanistan. He was killed in November of 2001. Um, what had happened was the, 
our uh, I, and this is all a matter of public record now. I don't think there's any anything secret about it. Uh, when we went to our first teams went to Afghanistan. When we determined after 9/11, it, immediately that the attack had come out of Afghanistan. It was uh, it was Arabs, but they were staged. They were training. Um, and uh, in Af Afghanistan, they've taken advantage of the relatively rel the failed government in that country. Uh, so uh, our response was to move into Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. And at that time, the Taliban, the ruling party, uh, had had control of about ninety percent of the country. The only part that they didn't control was the Panjshir Valley in the far northeast, and that's where the Northern Alliance was uh, concentrated. That was their primary opponent. And they had been driven up there, but the, they had a pretty good defensive environment in the Panjshir Valley because of its shape. It's a, it's a one great long ambush site. Mm -hmm. And the Russians had never been able to get up there effectively when they were fighting the Afghans. Uh, and if you, when you go up the road in the Panjshir Valley, there's a, uh, a Russian tank or a BMP nose down in the river or mm -hmm. belly up, about every click. And there's a lot of them up there. Um, anyway, the Northern Alliance was up there, and they had a very, very charismatic uh, leader uh, named Masood. And Masood was assassinated. September 10th. I think yeah. either the 9th or the 10th, yeah, yeah. by two uh, operatives, uh, mm -hmm. suicide guys. And the explosives were in their Cameron. Yeah. And uh, Ahmad Shah Masood, he, he, he was a really... I mean, really was a charismatic guy. In Afghanistan, you still see his picture yep, on the wall. Yep. Uh, but he had a weakness, and that was he liked to be interviewed. He liked to be mm -hmm. uh, uh, speaking uh, out for his movement. And they took advantage of that, and the two guys posed as journalists and got close to him and blew him up with a explosive-laden camera. Um, and I th people say that was an, an effort to cripple the Northern Alliance as an instrument of American policy, as American allies. Maybe. I, I don't think anyone knows for certain. Um, I, my, my belief is uh, it, it may have been the Pakistani Intel Service. They had their own, if you understand the dynamics of the situation there, they had very good reasons for wanting Massoud dead and the Northern Alliance uh, disabled. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's all I know about that. Now it's just, that's just speculation. Mm -hmm. The Pakistani embassy will probably call me now and say terrible <laughs> um, uh, But our we got teams organized, and our first team went in uh, called the NALT, the Northern Afghanistan Liaison Team. Uh, it was composed. There were some special activities guys and some others, and the leader of the team, Gary Schrong. Uh, who's written about it. He wrote a book called First In. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't read it, I, I recommend it. He a, a, was a great officer. And in fact, at 9-11, he was retired. He, uh, he hadn't been retired very long, weeks or a couple of months, something like that. And uh, he was persuaded to come out of retirement after 9-11 because of his language skills and his personal familiarity with the personalities in the Northern Alliance mm -hmm. and the various... Let's be honest about it. The warlords, you know, the yeah. way Afghanistan is organized, but they were they were our warlords for the minute. Um, because of the Russian thing, right? I mean, was that why he knew? Because he worked there. Well, yes, he'd worked on the covert action program 
uh, uh, arming the Mujahideen mm-hmm. uh, uh, and fighting the Russians, and which mm-hmm. was a successful yeah. covert action campaign. But then we were left with a lot of well-armed, experienced veteran Muj um, who started organizing in either under their local warlord or under the Taliban. And uh, you know, the, after the Russians left, there was a pretty bloody civil war and uh, it took a while for the Taliban to emerge as the victorious or ruling party in about 1993, I think. Um, anyway, uh, and they were a cruel bunch, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, imposed all of the Stone Age stuff Surreal, that they're famous yeah. for. Uh, they also... Um, Trying to remember the 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 Soviet installed head of government, the I don't know what his title was, prime minister, whatever. Uh, the Taliban Taliban eventually uh, charged, occupied his office, dragged him out of his office, or well, I think they killed him in his office. They castrated him, they killed him, they dragged him through the street, and that was the kind of regime they were establishing. That that level of cruelty. Um, anyway, the, the Northern Alliance was sitting up there in the Northeast, and, and uh, our first team flew in, landed on the ground September 26th, 15 days after 9-11, and began with, they had a lot of money with them, and they had Gary Schroen's uh, language and cultural and skills and experience. And, um, and I would offer that as typical of one of the advantages of the Central Intelligence Agency's covert or clandestine service. The military has to has to maintain its focus according to policy considerations coming out of the Pentagon and out of the White House. So if, if we have a military interest, a potential military involvement in a particular region, there'll be a lot of focus and time spent on that. If there's not, who cares? Mm-hmm. And Afghanistan fell into the who cares uh, bin after 1989, after the Russians left, except for us. We keep people in, in, in singletons or small numbers all around the world uh, keeping tabs on what's happening in their country, meeting key personalities, recruiting sources, and keeping their fingers on the pulse of that place. Mm-hmm. Because you never know when all of a sudden that place is going to become strategically important, and we need to know what's going on. And if everybody else has had that country in the who cares, Ben? There's going to be some CIA people who can inform policymakers. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that we do, I think, I'm not going to say superbly, because in my time, and I retired in 2004, so whatever changes have happened since then, I can't say. But we did it as well as resources allowed. And uh, if, if there had been more resources that enable us to keep more people active in more places, we would have done so. But having people on the ground who know what's going on and have access to key personalities and can if, uh, capably predict uh, events in that country, that's a, that's a real national asset. And one of the reasons that we made such a colossal mistake in Iraq uh, and allowed ourselves to be fooled by circumstantial evidence and thinking that he had weapons of mass destruction, one of the reasons that we made that mistake was we didn't have enough people on the ground to tell us what was really happening. There was a and void of information. There was yeah. a complete void. I don't think we had anybody on the ground. 
And we were trying to guess by all the indicators. Well, all the indicators said, yeah, he's got it. But unless you have somebody there to tell you, hey, we've been telling Saddam Hussein that we have this or we have that, because that's what he expects. And we don't say that. He's going to kill us and our children. But we don't have it. Mm -hmm. you know, the cupboards are bare. Uh, we just didn't have those sources. And, and, and Iraq is, a, I think, a, a, a mistake that we are still struggling to get over. Mm -hmm. and, and that region's still struggling to get over. And I don't mean to take anything away from the veterans of that conflict. I know it was a bad, bad place. I've been in Iraq. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, but as a, as a policy decision, we, it, it was a mistake, and the agency is uh, complicit in that. How does, how does the CIA handle loss of life uh, on their team? Because, you know, a lot of the... I think there's a, a great book. It might be called The Wall of Honor, but it talks about the stars mm -hmm. of the Central Intelligence Agency representing men or women who have died in service of the CIA and country. And I remember reading the book, and the first star was talking about a, a case officer who uh, exfilled China and then wound up getting killed by a Tibetan guard as he had gold bullion and you know, exfilled for months in his evasion corridor. Pretty impressive story, but just amazing um, dedication to his life and what he did. But a lot of the stars, you don't hear anything about, right? And Mike Spann... I think I could recall him being talked about mm -hmm. openly. And it was kind of shock for everybody because people were peeking behind the veil like, oh, wow, wow. we thought this guy was just a, a, a special operations guy or whatever he was, but he was a member of the CIA. How does, like, how did you process that when you find out Mike is killed? And is there things that are put in place to make sure that the families are taken care of just like you would in the military? Well, the families are taken care of. I can't say just as they would in the military. But there is a foundation that uh, uh, is dedicated to providing the, for the future of our officers who have fallen. Um, my response as a division chief uh, who owned Mike was to find out as quickly as possible, why did that happen? How did it happen? Was he where he should be? And could it have been prevented? Mm -hmm. How did this happen? And um, I would say, generally speaking, in Mike's case, the answers were he was doing what he was supposed to doing, be doing. He was doing it very courageously. He got way out on the end of, of the limb. And uh, the prisoners in uh, Kuala Jangi prison, where he was working, uh, had not been effectively processed. They had not all been disarmed. Uh, and they, ro they rose up. I think, uh, on a pre-planned, uh, in a pre-planned fashion. And they just simply attacked Mike and the other officer who was there. His name's Tyson. Um, and uh, Mike was way out there, and he didn't make it back. He didn't, he didn't get out. They overwhelmed him. And, uh, uh, you know, when the, something like that happens, it's, it's very easy to, to say... Well, we should have done this, or we should have done that. We shouldn't have been in this position. But um, overall, knowing no more than what he knew that day, 
Mike was doing his job the way he was supposed to, the way he, that was so characteristic of him. He, he wasn't thinking, how dangerous are these guys or what might happen? He was thinking, my job is to interrogate these guys and find out who they are and where they came from. Uh, so, you know, in, in a way, we, looking back, I wish there were things that we had done, but you can't undo them, and, and uh, all you can do is mourn Mike's loss and be proud of him. Did we recover Mike's remains? Did yes. We wound up doing that? Yes. Um, I, so Tyson was the other guy, yes. and I remember hearing stories about him later on, but he managed to escape, and he managed to return. He did, and there, um, were, um, there were other agency. We had teams on the ground those days, and there, was an, uh, there were other agency team members Nearby, there were some guys, uh, Royal Marines, some special boats. They were there and played an instrumental role in organizing the uh, suppression of that prison revolt. There was a battle. I mean, they, yeah. they had a, a real uh, sustained firefight inside the walls of that medieval castle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's what it looks like. Um, but uh, Mike was the only uh, American lost. We nearly lost some SF guys. Uh, to friendly fire, the, I think it was That's a B, right. B-52 yeah. and dropped the bomb on him. I think the combat controller, I went to a JTAC school as a as a special forces guy, but I remember them telling us that story. Um, and they said that he called, he gave the bird their grid, mixed up the grids or something like that, and wound up dropping the bomb on them, uh, just a mistake that was made. Uh, certain parameters that it didn't exist then exist because of that. Um, as as you're going through this process of standing up new capability, I'm assuming we didn't we had the capacity, but we didn't have the right capability, right? Because we weren't prepared, as far as uh, I understand, to react to something this big, and so. You, I'm assuming your budget changed. The you were given every asset at your disposal, or were, were you limited in your abilities? I never. Uh, I don't remember ever running into uh, budget constraints. I mean, we had a, we had enough money to do uh, uh, what we needed to do, and we had the resources. We got lucky. I got lucky uh, that we had uh, staged. Um, a lot of gear and weapons. Um, I'm not going to tell you how many, but a lot. And um, when I took over Special Activities Division, we had a, a facility, a place where this kind of thing was stored. And they were stored in what are called Class 1 bunkers. Well, you see them on old military bases. And uh, the, one of those bunkers had all these rifles. I mean, a, a lot. And... Um, I said, what do we need those for? Well, we don't know. I said, well, what if we wanted to get rid of them? And I found out that it was very expensive to get rid. Probably more expensive than, than to keep them. <laughs> yeah, more, more expensive than to make them. I mean, yeah. you, you, can't, you couldn't just take them out and dump them in the ocean or do something like that. They, it was a real elaborate demill process. So I said, well, the hell with that. They're, just, they're not hurting anybody in that bunker. Just leave them there. Mm-hmm. Well... Morning after 9-11, I was the smartest guy in town because I had all these AKs that the Northern Alliance needed. 
And the army doesn't do stuff like that. At least they didn't then. Mm -hmm. So we were we were the prettiest girls to party uh, in terms of our ability to twenty five thousand sets of cold weather gear. Um, and I mean the and the uh, I went over there in early October. When the Northern Alliance was really uh, picking up speed, and uh, you know they had they could stand in formation and they had order battle the whole deal. <laughs> And now they had a bunch of equipment that we'd given them, guns. And, uh, and it was interesting, as, as an intelligence officer, you, you watch for little, little indicators. Uh, they, very, they welcomed uh, AKMs. Anything in 7.62, I was just fine with them. But if you offered them an AK-74, they, they depended on an entirely different ammo train, not interested. Mm. Because they had mountains of 7.62 ammunition. They didn't have any 5.5, what is it, 5.45. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would make them dependent on us for their ammo. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want that. That was an indicator. Yeah. But anyway, once we got them equipped, the Northern Alliance shot down the Shamali Plain from the, the mouth of the Panjshir Valley straight down to Kabul. And we were, we were discussing how do we... Uh, arrange what steps should we take to try to reconcile these Northern Alliance guys who are all uh, Uzbeks and uh, Tajiks and you know the, the northern part of Afghanistan, Hazara, and they're headed for Kabul, and that's all Pashtun, mm-hmm. and that's oil and water. So how do how do what steps should we take to make sure that we get them effectively integrated and make it nice? Well, while we were talking about it, they, were, they already they went right down to Kabul. They were in Kabul in November. Wow. And they charged down that plane, and the Taliban melted. And there were a number of inc- instances where uh, CIA t- team members, in assistance to them, um, let them see the 21st century being introduced to the Taliban in the form of B-52s or B-1s or you know, laser-guided JDAMs or whatever they had. And... Um, it was a for guys who had been the Northern Alliance had been pushed all the way up in a tiny corner of their country and hanging on by their fingernails to suddenly be on the offensive and have the the might of the United States, particularly our uh, air resources. They were a happy crew and they were they were moving fast. So fortunately, we got things as as integrated and reconciled as possible in that country. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least for a while. Um, fortunately, there was a big lawyer, Jurga, that was planned and held and some effort made at forming a new government that recognized everybody. But have you served in Afghanistan? I did. I've done uh, two rotations. I, well, then would you agree with me that if you could, if you could get an, an Afghan citizen mm-hmm. to trust you enough and to talk to you openly... He would not describe himself as an Afghan. Mm-hmm. He would tell you he's a Pashtun. Oh, yeah. Or he's a Hazara. Tribal. There, yeah. there's, there is no Afghan nope. no, person. No, there's no nationalism. No, right. um, and uh, I, I think part of our problem, a big part of our problem, in the, the lingering conflict in Afghanistan, our effort to bring it to a useful conclusion, is there's never been much of a country there. You know, They don't have a long history of being... One country, mm-hmm. uh, the one country on the map, thanks to the British 
line drawers back in the early 20th century. But in terms of their political, social understanding. Completely tribal. It right? is tribal, tribal patchwork. Anyway, and, and that that's distinguishes it quite clearly from Iraq. Mm-hmm. Iraq can be a vicious, brutal place, and you have all the conflicts between Sunni and Shia and all mm-hmm. that, Kurds. Um, but it has a history of being a country. Mm-hmm. A person can think of himself as an Iraqi. Um, that's an advantage. Uh, I, and, and speaking of the Kurds, I, I, I spent some time up in northern Iraq, well, Kurdistan, as I call it. It's, you know, it's a beautiful part of the country. Yeah. And the Kurds have certainly fought capably and, and effectively on our side mm-hmm. a number of times and have been sold out a number of times. Mm-hmm. Um, I regret that. They have the misfortune of being geographically in a bad place, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. wedged in between Turkey and Syria and Iraq. And I can guarantee you from my experience with the Turks, the Turks are not going to give them an inch Mm-mm. of land. Yeah. That's Turkish land into discussion. So, but they've done well in northern Iraq, and we, they prospered under our um, that no-fly zone thing that we had in place yeah. uh, for a while. Did you? So, where does your special activities um, division chief career end, and how did how did that end? Like, what what was the um, was it time? How did how did you step away, and what was your feeling when you stepped away? Well, normally uh, in the uh, director of operations. A division chief serves three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been chief SAD for four years. And if they had allowed me to, I would have stayed another year. But four years was all I was going to get. That I was already past my expiration date. Did and 9-11 extend that timeline because they wanted you institutional knowledge and experience in that position? Well, yeah. If my If my normal tour had been scheduled to end sometime in the year after 9-11, then I, they, I would have extended, been extended, mm-hmm. I think, without any question. Um, but one of the things that goes into the decision about who serves where and how long is what other officers do they have to place? Um, how do you keep people going? It's the same as in the military. Mm-hmm. You, know? um, you have a real good officer in a place for three years, but then he's got to move for his benefit and the benefit of the organization. So in my case, I couldn't get a fifth year. That was not reasonable. And they had a very capable guy uh, who was coming home from an African posting, John Bennett, um, uh, who wanted that job. And so they put him in it. And I moved on to a sort of uh, division chief emeritus position um, in what's called the leadership chair at the Advanced Tradecraft facility. It's a place where people in, it's sort of like um, in the military, what is it, staff and gen, general staff and whatever it is for yeah. promising majors. Yeah, general staff. Yeah, we, we have a similar facility for officers who are mid-career and promising. And there were a number of chairs. Leadership was one. And so I sat in that chair and tried to talk about leadership um, to our uh, off mid-career officers. And leadership in the agency is, I think, quite distinct from any other uh, environment I've been in. Uh, And it starts, in my opinion, 
it starts at the bottom. You can be a, a junior officer, but in your station, if you're sitting at the table and you, you demonstrate the ability to listen, uh, to respect other people, to um, change your position if you are presented with a superior plan. If you can, can uh, restrain your ego, and, and, and not be fight for the position you went in with because it's your position and you're not going to give up. But if you can instead, if you can keep your mind open and listen and say, you know what, Mike, I, I think my plan's pretty good, but what you just suggested, it's better with what you, that's a good idea. Mm. And that, that's a form of leadership because the other people around the room, the room, the other young officers who have to find their way can see that there's a way to be successful and effective, uh, perhaps most effective, if you're able to, to listen and to respect the views of others and not let your ego get in the way, mm -hmm. but, but make, make yourself more effective by uh, listening and understanding, keeping your mind open. Um, and the other, another element of leadership in the agency is integrity. Uh, the, as I said earlier, you are often an army of one. When you come back from a meeting with an asset, there were nobody there but you and the asset. And when you write your intelligence reports and your ops cable about what happened, it's up to you to be honest with yourself first and then honest with others. And if you went out there determined to get the answers to four key questions, but it was late, you were tired, things happened, yada, um, you didn't get the answer to the fourth. And you come back to write your cables and you think, shoot, I can say I have yet to uh, get the answer to number four. I didn't get it. Still working on it. Or you can think to yourself, damn it, I didn't ask him, but I know what he would have said. I know what he would have answered. And you provide that fourth answer yourself you just started lying to yourself and lying to your colleagues and lying to headquarters. Uh, and that's how, I can tell you from my time at Chief Counterintelligence Center, which, where I had to do post-mortems on things gone wrong, um, very often the individual our, in our ranks who went wrong, his first step in that path was lying to himself and finding he could get away with it and start rationalizing. Uh, we had an officer who was a, a bright and shining star uh, back in about 1991, 92. Um, uh, he produced uh, intelligence reports that were superb. He got four O's. O is outstanding. And you're lucky if you get two or three outstandings in a whole career. Uh, he got four in one week, the first week of the first uh, Iraqi war. And um, it turned out he got them from an asset who didn't exist. An asset was in another country, not in contact with us. And on examination, uh, they found he'd produced about 250 intelligence reports that were his own creation. Mm. I mean, that's a catastrophe. Yeah. And all of the consumers of those intelligence reports, State Department, uh, military, whoever they are, White House, National Security Council, they have to be advised. All of the following reports should be disregarded. They are no good. Uh, that was a calamity. Uh, 
But that guy started, I worked with him uh, when he was still a bright and shining success. And um, it was clear that he started uh, with, with those little crimes, you know, of, of making up a, a one paragraph of an intelligence report. And once he found he could get away with it, there's nobody watching him, nobody to second guess him, uh, to catch him out. He took off. I mean, he went crazy. And he was doing such good work that um, we, we used to have a counterintelligence uh, presentation for new officers that has split screen. And it had on, on the left-hand side all of the glowing evaluations he was getting on his fitness reports, what we call PARs. And on the right, all of the shit that he was making up at the very same time. Mm. How effectively he was fooling his superiors, his command. It was a real lesson. In fact, after, as, as I recall, after that little presentation was made a couple of times, they canned it. They said, no, we don't want to show that anymore. It's yeah, too embarrassing. Too embarrassing to, yeah. to the senior guys who are still serving, mm -hmm. you know, who wrote those, those comments. So that's a little, little tour of the integrity component of, uh, of what we do. And, I, and I'm proud to say, in my opinion, that the vast majority, virtually all of our officers, are possessed of that kind of integrity. Mm -hmm. You got to be. After you left that leadership position, kind of mentoring others, where did you go from there? Did, did you retire or did you? I, I, I spent uh, one year, because before I went into the agency, I had been a federal prosecutor and I, I knew the, the uh, FBI's language and the walk the walk and talk the talk of federal criminal prosecutions and so on. And we desperately needed, the, the country desperately needed, and the, both FBI and CIA needed a, a much closer weld between CIA and FBI. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of daylight there and a, a lot of uh, missed opportunities and so on. It's well known. So uh, I was content in the leadership chair, but the DDO, DDO called me up and said, we need a senior guy, ops guy, at the Bureau. And you've got this background, and you know what a subpoena is, and you know what a grand jury is. So um, I'm going to send you down there, and you're going to be a, a deputy assistant director in the National Security Division. So I went down there to the Bureau. And that was a very interesting experience, because what you can do, your total experience and your success rate is dependent almost entirely on the person you work for and the maybe one or two people you work alongside. Mm -hmm. If they are the kind of people I was just talking about in the young officers, if, they, if their minds are open and they, and they really want to make a, a, a one team, one fight kind of uh, meld a bureau and agency, then you'll have a good experience. And some of our guys who've gone down there uh, have had good experiences. Um, I worked for a, an assistant director who was FBI to the bone. I mean, if, if it wasn't FBI, he wasn't interested. If he could have, he would have tied a leper bell around my neck so people would know that I was coming and shut up. Um, I was excluded from some meetings. Uh, I, my input was... Uh, largely ineffective because he, he wasn't listening. I mean, he was a, he was an ass. And uh, later, after he retired, um, 
uh, he went to work for a cruise line company. I heard that. And I was with, there were a number of FBI guys I worked with who were very uh, capable and, and, and bright and aggressive and open-minded. And I was talking to one of them and I said, gosh, he's down there on that cruise ship. I would pay money to watch him fall overboard. <laughs> and, and the FBI guy says to me, get in line. <laughs> <laughs> That's the retirement. That was my last year in the in the agency. Did it leave a bad taste in your mouth, or were you did you feel accomplished when you left the, the agency? Um, I mean, I have, I have regrets about the conditions under which I worked, and the uh, the fact that they, they prevented me from being as effective as I would have liked to be. Mm -hmm. um, I did everything I could under the circumstances, but that was not much. So yeah, I, I hate to have a career end on that note, but uh, I can say I was old enough and, and had had enough uh, exposure to institutions, organizations, and individuals that I'm not gonna lose any sleep over it. It was what it was. And, uh, and I, I made some friends down there and, and, uh, and, and laid a little groundwork for people who came after and were much more effective. Mm. Um, it, it, and it, it, one reason I don't have any real regrets is it was a terrific learning experience because you may recall that in about 2002 or three, there was a lot of talk about the creation of a domestic intelligence service mm -hmm. as, like the Brits have mm -hmm. and that we would have an independent MI5 kind of domestic intelligence agency because it was clear we needed it. There, there were... Uh, people making plans in Damascus or in Sana'a that would be executed in Detroit or in, in uh, Syracuse. So things had gone very transnational, and we needed a solid weld between a, dom a domestic intelligence capability and our own foreign intelligence. Well, the FBI woke up to the fact that this MI5 idea was catching on, and uh, they didn't mean to have anybody in the domestic intelligence arena except the FBI. Mm -hmm. And they pursued that mission aggressively when they finally realized what was going on. And they caught it. They got the, the mission. When they did, in my opinion, they were the dog that caught the car. They had a big mandate and no experience and really no infrastructure to pursue that. And when you think about it, the FBI, which is a, a, a superb crime-fighting organization, I don't take anything away from that, but it, its entire structure was based on fighting crime and prosecuting people. And so the FBI's guys on the street, wherever they were in the United States, they were in support of the United States Attorney for that district. And when they gathered information, that information went into that office, that courthouse. When it was presented to the grand jury, it came out and it was secret and it went in a filing cabinet in the U.S. attorney's drawer. That's the way criminal cases are prosecuted. They're, they're, they take place wherever they are, and, it's, and it begins and ends there. They had no communication infrastructure, no training, no experience with the collection of intelligence not for a criminal offense, but because it was of intelligence value. And they had been burned once before in a program called COINTEL, COINTEL Pro, where they were gathering intelligence domestically on uh, 
anti-war movements and on Martin Luther King and all of that, and, and they were bruised by that experience. So bright young FBI guys didn't want to get into business mm. of collecting intelligence on American citizens without what's called a, uh, I think, precedent offense. They need to have a crime they're investigating. Mm. Uh -uh. If you're going to have an intelligence capability, you're going to gather intelligence for its own sake. And you're going to have a communica communication structure that ensures that if Mike Glover in Salt Lake City picks up a, a key piece of intelligence about uh, a, a, a group of Iranians in this country, some of whom are in Salt Lake and some of them are, are scattered around the United States, you need an infrastructure that allows Mike Glover to get that information out to anybody who's got an Iranian in his sights in the United States. And we are, our communication system has been built from scratch, from 19, beginning in 1947, same year I was born. Uh, we do that. If you're in Damascus and you, you have a, a, a matter that is clearly going to be of interest to people in um, Kuwait City or in, in uh, Riyadh, you just put a, there's an indicator of what the subject matter is. And bingo, our, our, our system, our communication system, will make sure that anybody who has registered an interest in that same subject gets that cable, mm -hmm. whether you know about them or not. Um, so the FBI has to build that tradition, that kind of communication, and has to overcome the special agent crime fighting mentality. Mm. And I think that's been a real struggle for them. I, I, I mean, I left in 2004, so I don't know how much progress they've made in the intervening years. I hope a lot, mm. uh, but we certainly need it. And, and I will say, when all is said and done, uh, we haven't had another major attack in this country. Mm-hmm. So, doing something right. Yeah, they're doing something right. That's right. What is your sum up of your career and experiences up to that point? If you could sum up your career at the Central Intelligence Agency, what would it be? Well, I, I, as I said, the, the the opportunity to be out there and uh, pursuing intelligence, pursuing information from human sources. Uh, that is of vital importance to our policy decisions is a, is a wonderful job. If, if you have the confidence and the skills and the talent and the discipline to do it right, you have the opportunity uh, to spot, assess, develop, and recruit those sources. And that's, a, that's an elaborate process. It's a, a real uh, psychological dance sometimes. There are... I've known case officers who, who say proudly, I can recruit anybody on a second meeting. Well, maybe you can. Uh, I don't think that's right. There's a lot more to it than that. And you mm -hmm. want to know who you're recruiting and how you're going to handle them. Um, but that, uh, I think that was that chance to be out there on my own and, and bringing home that kind of valuable Intel product was a, I, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. It was a great job, a great opportunity. And uh, uh, the unfortunate thing is, organizationally, any organization, including the director of operations, it's like the military, every promotion, every step up in your professional career moves you away from your troops, away from the heart of the job. Mm -hmm. uh, so pretty soon you're a, a, a group chief and then a division chief who are trying to provide as well as you can direction, purpose, guidance 
to the young guys who are doing the real job. Mm. And uh, so I guess to sum up, what I'd like to be is 34 years old again and uh, out on the street, but that's not gonna happen. Uh, I'm too old now. My daughter refers to my youth as the age of steam, and uh, it's time for me to hang it up. All I have to offer now is experience, which I do as often as I can with Marsoc and some others. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people listen to this who don't have an understanding. You know, we get asked all the time, like, "Hey, what's your experience in the CIA?" Which is very limited. Um, where do I go? What kind of attributes are people looking for? And I think uh, you very well uh, contextualize that experience, and a lot of people are going to pay attention to that. Um, I, I'd like to offer the chance to come back and do a part two when you get time because <laughs> there's so many things to dive into because your myriad of experience is just so beneficial for especially young people but old people who are trying to make sense of things they don't understand. And I, I think uh, we did a good job at that, and I appreciate your time and your service, sir. I appreciate you coming out here. Well, I I'm appreciate the invitation to be here. As I said, uh, at my age, all I have really to, to offer is experience and, and um, my opinions. And I think it's important in a, in a time when, as you pointed out, the, the young guys who are really at, at an age where they're, they're the action figures, uh, they're being bombarded mm-hmm. by uh, all kinds of crap that is just confusing, misleading. And uh, if I can help with a, a, an injection of reality and uh, understanding, then that's that's all I can do at this age. Um, so, and my wife said yesterday I have a face for radio. So, uh, <laughs> I, I guess a podcast is a good place for me to. That's to a good be start point. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, okay. sir, for coming on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Turn my face.